Rodney, it's happening. What's up, man? How are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, so you ever used uh, oil of oregano no. for, for no. the purpose of, of killing germs no. and viruses in your mouth? I got to tell you. Instead of just you. eating it? I got to tell you. You do a lot of things for your immune system. And you still get sick. Well, you know when I get sick. When you don't do these things. Mm. Mm. So consistency <laughs> is the key. With, well, with it's consistency, but like oregano. a lot of these things. So like oil of oregano is not something I would use all the time anyway. I use it when I'm traveling. Like when I'm in a place where I know I'm going to be around a lot of germs. Mm. Now, I have a two-year-old, so maybe I should use oil of oregano all the time because she's at daycare. Yeah. And she's probably bringing home germs for us to try out every day. Yeah. So maybe I should be more consistent with my zinc and oil of oregano. Hmm. That's a good tip. Consistency. That's like a reverse stick. It's like a stick. And then it got turned back on me. <laughs> it's like self-improvement, everybody. Consistency with your, your immune protection homeopathic remedies. Mm. It's good. I don't think that's homeopathic, though. Hey, I'm Keith. And I'm Rodney. And this is the More In Common Podcast. Welcome. This is a place for genuine, authentic conversation and where we explore the fact that we actually have more in common than that which divides us. And if you're interested, you can find everything about More In Common Podcast at www.moreincommonpod.com. Uh, you can go and find all things More In Common. Now, before we get into the review of last episode, we have to read one of the amazing reviews from actually one of our past guests, Jeff Pippett. Since he took the time to write it, we're going to take the time to read it. Rodney and Keith are amazing hosts. His words, not mine, I promise. Their flow is so natural, feels like guys hanging at a bar having a great, insightful conversation. Jeff, we're excited to have that review to potentially Amen. collaborate with you again here soon. And uh, thank you for joining us on the show. Last episode, JJ. Yeah. What what would you uh, would you take away from that? The intensity with which JJ listens. I mean, he's mm. a fairly intense guy. Is what I what I got from talking to him, and he doesn't really have a middle ground. He's all the way on or all the way off, and <clears throat> the intensity with which he listens, and then the listening methodology that they he and his team came up with. Uh, it's just it's been really impactful for me since uh, during that conversation, but since that conversation, like yeah. checking in, checking in with myself, checking in with my wife, checking in with you, checking in with my friends, like to see how things are actually going. It really, even with uh, my two year old, like when she gets home from daycare, like how do you feel? Like how are you feeling right now? How did you feel today? Uh, it it's a question that I don't think I asked enough, and uh, it's really changing some of my relationships so it's really good what about you um you know, one of the things for me was the even though i don't know i'll be I'll ever be in this situation but if you're ever in it suicide prevention tips that he talks about 
like you want to talk about being prepared or caught off guard like it's just been it's something that resonate resonated and stuck with me and then his just pure honesty and vulnerability um to represent himself as as he sees himself as a man even though he had a life ingrained in a toxic a toxically masculine environment so it was just awesome to have him well and i think that check-in process was even a part of what he used in the suicide part so rod who do we have today Today, we are with Gina Choi. Gina was born in Memphis, Tennessee, but considers Los Angeles her home. She attended Pepperdine University and is currently an advertising account manager at Microsoft. Her favorite author is F. Scott Fitzgerald. He is an author that fanned the flame for her love of reading after she finished school. In 2018, she spoke at a TEDx conference on the topic of being open to new passions in life. Where she isn't sitting at a desk, she spends her time taking photos in some new workout routine, studying slash enjoying wine, and planning international travel in Excel spreadsheets. What did we get into in this conversation, Keith? My goodness. Um, Her childhood, as usual, um, how she feels she's an overachiever. Uh, We talk about her her, uh, managing anxiety and having panic attacks. We talk about passion what it means to be a Korean American to her and just so many other things. Um, super excited to bring this conversation to you and, and real quick before we get into it, what strikes you about the dialogue? So I know Gina from work, but I didn't, we didn't, we didn't know each other on this level. It turns out we're basically twins. Yeah. You guys are very the overachiever. Yeah. We love the, we love our cookies and stickers. Uh, anxiety part is a little different, but very much alike. Uh, she mentioned a book called the road back to you in Enneagram journey. I read that book. Fantastic book. Highly recommend it um, for people who are interested in personality types. It's not like the Holy Grail or anything, but it's just really good. Uh, so that's what struck me about you. Uh, funny you say what struck you is that she's like you, and what struck me is that she's like you. Um, and, you know, but specifically how she thinks about, you know, we get so caught up in this idea of passion being something we need to pursue, whereas in her mind it's like just have passions and do them regardless of what you do for a living. And it just reminds me of you and how you do all of these things that our sticks represent, um, and you get paid for none of them. So it's it's just a really cool parallel to, to your life. So it, it's a big thread in the conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. But it's not, right? Like, you can be passionate about something and get no recognition that doesn't invalidate your passion or make it any less valuable. Um, so I think a lot of times people are scared to fully commit to their passion thinking that, and I've, I'm guilty of this too, it's like, for, for me it was photography, but like, it's not profitable or I can't make a living off of this, so I'm not going to pursue my passion or I'm not going to think about it, I'm going to cast it off to the side and focus on my career when you can do both. Well, good morning. Here we are with Gina Choi. Gina, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. In the lead up to this, we talked about a lot of things, but where I want to start is uh, I I asked you, what's your favorite thing to ask a young person? And Mm. you said, uh, what'd you do for fun today? And I loved your answer. So I would love you to explain why you said that. Mm -hmm. And then also, well, I have a follow up question. Potentially, depending on like what you say. But, okay. Yeah. 
Um, so I have a few thoughts, and one, it goes back to my childhood. I was your typical goody-two-shoes sort of student, and I was always very proud of, of showcasing that to my parents or any other adult who would ask me, like, how's your day, how's school? You know, I got an A, I got 100%, you know, I got picked first in PE. Um, and lately, I've met a ton of cool kids through babysitting, through my friend's kids, things like that, and they've actually reminded me um, a very basic life lessons like uh, for example I think of one where um, this girl named Ava who I who I babysit looked at me one day we were eating and she goes you can be whatever you want mm. out of nowhere and and so um the mouths of babes yeah man I was like whoa it literally like almost made me cry because I was actually going through like career per, like thoughts and transitions and things like that and mm-hmm. um so I asked that because I I want to remind kids that they should play and they should have fun and it also serves as a reminder for me to relate to them in that way, too, instead of trying to, like, bring them up to my level and ask, how was school? What are you learning? You know, mm-hmm. what are you doing kind of thing? Yeah. Um, what do you want to be when you grow up? I try to not, not do that because I was so hung up on those types of things when I was little. And so I try <clears throat> to ask them about playing and joy more. I, I loved it because my dad and I often talk about, like, when do children lose being children mm-hmm. like the innocence and the the fun and all of that stuff you're talking like mm-hmm. and i when you said it i started thinking that like, i typically say what'd you learn today and i might ask um how, how do you too. feel yeah well and i i mean I, yes you should learn something every yes. day like it, life is huge and there's always something to learn however i when i think about back to me like that's the question i got asked and it became and i was a goody two shoes that like I didn't want to let anybody down. Mm. So I felt like this urge, this push to make sure I learned and cataloged so I could answer the question Mm -hmm. at the end of the day versus being a kid and like going and having fun. And it's not my parents' fault that I felt that way. No. Um, They weren't trying to do that, but it was like a piece of that childishness died. I think what you, you, like that question, first of all, I, like I can envision asking that question and it's like asking, you know, somebody about what they're, what they love, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. if someone's really into gardening and you ask them about their job, you're going to get a half, oh, my job's okay, mm-hmm. right? Like my job's good. Uh, tell me about your garden and you're going to let them open up, right? And kids are about having fun. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, and I think this just from a, a tip perspective, like this goes back to our first episode where one of the most resonant tips for conversation that I've had since we started this podcast was speak to the level of your audience. And you just said, rather than bring them up to where I am learning academic, trying to figure out how to make you better, like who mm-hmm. are you today? We can get to that once you've learned to trust me. And mm-hmm. now we're having a conversation about what matters to you before we have a conversation about what matters to me. And I think there, there's just so much practice. Like when we talk about conversation tips, like that's an awesome way to practice. Practice on a kid, ask them what they had, how, what they did to have fun today, and like you can just open your mind up to to listening and ideas. I just think it's I think it's an awesome awesome perspective. Yeah. And I will ask that question moving forward. <laughs> like I just love it. Um, speaking so that goes into my next question. Mm. Um, I so I get to work 
near you in the office. We don't work together. Right. Um, we talk every once in a while, <clears throat> and I see you as a super, like, I don't know if you're type A, but, like, a very high achiever. Oh. Um, and you said something else in the in the lead up that uh, when you when you feel like you can feel yourself slowing down, mm-hmm. like when when you're not achieving the thing that you want to be achieving or at the rate that you want to be achieving it. And you said slowing down. So I was wondering what you meant by slowing down and then how you catch yourself. Because You said you're pretty good at catching yourself. Mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how you. Yeah. So I would say when I'm in my most healthy I am, I am a, I am an overachiever. So you're very accurate in that, almost to a fault. I said high achiever. Oh, high! Sorry. <laughs> it's interesting what we do it. to ourselves, isn't I said it? it? Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, yeah. So when I am in my healthy state, I tend to overextend myself, which is, sounds unhealthy, but that's where I feel the most productive. That's where I feel the most, um, I guess, fulfillment. That's in like personal life. And in my professional and once in my academic life, where I slow down is where uh, is when I feel like what I'm doing and the effort that I'm putting towards something is not meaningful to me. Like it's not it's not adding to the um, core of who I am or my values. So maybe, you know, I'm I'm behaving in a way a certain way with certain people that I feel like is taking away from my life. It's not adding to me. It's not adding to them. And I'm very in tune with that. Like I need relationships to be. Um, wholesome and fulfilling for both of us. I can feel myself slowly starting to peel off of that and kind of go into myself and reflect. And then that in turn slows me down, right? So then I get into my journals and my writing and my reading and stuff. And and that's just one example, but Mm. on a grander scale, like I think our careers are something that, that happens a lot where we feel like we're not doing work at whatever job we are at or whatever company we're at. And um, it gives you pause because you're like, what What am I doing every day? Nine to five, 40 hours a week. I'm spending more time with my coworkers and my family. What am I, What what is the goal here, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's what I meant by like slowing down is yeah. I, I tend to take a pause when I feel myself saying no to projects, not raising my hand. So that for you, that's a, it's a red flag or it's a flag yeah. to say like, well, okay, something else is going on. Yeah, like I'm disengaging mentally. Mm. Um, and I'm distancing myself maybe because I'm afraid to keep pursuing this or because it's just not interesting anymore. Hmm. And, um, then I have to reset. So Rodney said high achiever. You said overachiever, Mm -hmm. um, which often has a negative connotation, like, and maybe a little self-deprecating from considering yourself a high achiever. Like, what do you define an overachiever as? Like when you say I'm an overachiever, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Um, it's, it's definitely fulfilling whatever role you're expected to fulfill. So if you're a student, that is to be an excellent student, but then above that, it's like your extracurriculars, it's your, your volunteer work, all of that stuff, all packaged up nicely in a way that's maybe different from your core, like core peer set or who who's around you. So for work, it might be you're on one other project than the next person, you know, or is this a, <clears throat> is this something you think on your own or is this something that you were taught to think? This was very much on my own because my parents were always very concerned. 
(laughs) (laughs) Especially my mom, she would say, Gina, you are just relax, right? Um, And even my dad, I remember he would say things like, you're 21, you know, back in college, like, or like, don't you go to the club? Like, no. I had, I don't think I've ever told you this, Keith, but my senior year in high school, my dad, apparently my dad had been concerned for a long time. And so he sat me down and showed me like Risky Business and a number of other movies of like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I'd already seen. But he's just like, <laughs> do something like be irresponsible uh-huh. for like a day. He's like, be a teenager. Yeah. It's really bothering me. Yeah, yeah. But I think so. So this is really interesting, right? Like you based on the way you talked about slowing yourself down, you feel comfortable in a quote unquote overachievement state, right? Which I would then say you're in an achievement state. Like they're they're not comparing to anybody else. You're mm-hmm. in, you're just achieving the way you're most comfortable. Mm-hmm. And yet you try to bring yourself out of that because of is it social pressures, the way you were raised. I mean, you lived in what, 11 different places between seven and 18. Like what's the root of the negative perception of quote unquote overachievement? Well, and that's, is it negative? Like when you say it, do you say it negatively? Like, do you feel negative about it? I don't feel negative about it. The only negative I would say is like the burnout part of it. Mm. Um, where I've, I have struggled with anxiety and panic attacks, you know, in high school and in my early career. And I know that when I'm not getting sleep, when I'm not feeling healthy, when I'm not going to the gym, when I'm not eating right, um, those things happen. Like I, I get panic attacks and anxiety attacks. So I guess the overachieving in and of itself isn't so bad or negative in my mind. It's, it's the effect of it which is what causes me to slow down as I, as I learn more about myself and about what I need and like what kind of space I need to feel healthy, not just in my achievements, but in my mental health too. How, how did you get to that place? Like you talk about journaling and the other Mm -hmm. things that you do today, but how, you know, how, how did you get to that space managing through panic attacks and, you know, anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was really bad after college. Like when I first started working, it was, it was crippling. Like I couldn't go to work. I couldn't, I couldn't do the things that I was so used to doing growing up, which is to be the person who knows all the answers, who gets all the tests, you know, all that, all that sort of thing. So I got through it by admitting that I needed help and seeking out that help and telling people, you know, people who, loved and trusted me and and knew who I was that I needed help and that was the hardest thing honestly like and so real quick when you say it was crippling like yeah this is like panic attacks oh yeah so what does that look like like what is a panic attack yeah so well a panic attack for me looks like not being able to breathe like sweating mind racing um depending on where I was like if I was at work everything would spin like cause I would be sitting upright mm-hmm. a lot of the time it happened when I was waking up in the morning. Um, there's a lot of biological reasons for that, but I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. Like I knew I had to get up and go to the bathroom, brush my teeth, all that couldn't do it. It was just like I was strapped to the mattress and I couldn't so get you up. Could, physically couldn't but get up. Physically felt like I was and emotionally. Yeah. 
and what kind of biological reasons you kind of just went by that yeah there's some kind of like chemical in your brain in the morning that spikes for everyone can't remember what that is right now um and that just tends to exacerbate symptoms in the morning Mm. um some people feel it at night but it is very like around the clock Hmm. something i learned through therapy interesting Hmm. Mm -hmm. so what made you so i this is fascinating that self-awareness like for the audience purposes like you're you're young you're in your 20s right like the ability to have that awareness at a young age to say hey i need help mm-hmm. you know a lot of people struggle with it for a long time before they get to that point mm-hmm. so how did how, how did you where does that come from right is it your parents like you know i'm, I'm very curious yeah um truth be told i think i should have gotten help in high school did you have them then or did it did it peak post college? And- I had them in high school. Yeah. And I'm not I don't uh, I don't really remember how I managed. I think I just suppressed and just I don't know. I think I filled my time with positive things like um friends, social activities, things like that and luck I was lucky to not have slid further from that point, but it definitely got worse after college. Um and where it all came to a head was I couldn't go to work. I was commuting like an hour and a half and I couldn't drive because of my panic Mm. attacks. Like I physically could not safely drive to work because, you know, LA traffic and things. And I was pulling over every few miles, like breathing exercise. Like I couldn't, I couldn't drive. So I had to tell my, um, my manager at the time that I couldn't make it into the office. And, um, essentially they told me to take a leave of absence which I felt was very drastic. Like I, I wasn't asking for that. Um, and then the other alternative. So did you feel it was like punitive? Yeah. From, yeah. That was not the best uh, conversation, I think. Um, did that cause a panic attack? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I felt like I had to hide them. You know, I felt like I could. Oh, like mm-hmm. saying them was yeah. then like you were going to be punished at work because you valued your job. Right. And... and that gave me a panic attack because I was like, I can't, I can't lose my job. I can't you know, take a step back in my career. I can't do this. I can't afford to do this right now. Were um, they actually trying to be supportive? Like, or no? No, not at all. Mm. They gave me like a 1-800 number, a form for leave of absence if I wanted it. And uh-huh. then my manager was like, I don't know why you're telling me this right now. And gave me HR's number. It was a bad situation. How do you, how do you feel about talking about mental health now? I mean, obviously, you seem pretty comfortable with it at the oh, moment. Oh, yeah. I think it's so important to talk about because there are still people who don't feel comfortable talking about it. I know, yeah, recently, recently. And we talk about it a lot. Yeah. Recently, we talk about it a lot more. It's celebrities people look up to are talking about it. Like, it's a very, I would say, evolved conversation than what it was even like two, three, four, five years ago. Um, and so I feel very comfortable and I feel very um, passionate about talking about it. So if anyone even brings up a thought about mental health, I always share my story or I try to share my mm-hmm. story. And I find that people who know me are very surprised. And that just encourages me to share more. It's like yeah. there's not one type of person that experiences anxiety or panic. You know, it, it can be the person who's like happy and giddy on the fr- in, in the front, um, uh, front facing to the world. But 
they're struggling. And um, when you said you had them in high school, but you maybe you're not sure how you got through, like maybe you suppressed them. So did, what do you remember at all what you said to yourself? Were you like, oh, I can get through this or it's not a big deal or it's like, yeah, I everybody know. has this or what did you? I didn't know what it was to be. And I, I just thought it was stress and like college fear or anxiety. And like, I just thought I was um, just stressed about school. And I was like, oh, it's junior year. Everyone's stressed, you know, like calm down, you know, relax. Everyone's going through this. Your classes aren't that hard. You know, you don't have that much going on. So it was a lot of like pu- pushing it down. And I didn't know what like mental health was not something we talked about. And I didn't know even we what that We as in meant. your family? Uh, I think like my family, my friends, my school, like we never really talked about it. I, I wasn't exposed to that topic. Um, I get that. Yeah. So I didn't know that I had panic attacks or anxiety till after, till I had them after, like in college or after college, I should say. Did you have them in college as well? No, <clears throat> I was pretty steady Eddie in, in college. And again, I can't explain why that happens. I can't explain why some people struggle for it with it for years. And some people, it just kind of like comes and goes. But for me, um, I can remember very specific chapters in my life where it happened and other chapters I felt nothing like I don't, I don't, I don't struggle with it right now. Um, but that could change. And, and so brain guy, I'm gonna start calling you brain guy since you're the the psych guy. Do you have any, do you know anything about panic attacks from a, from an academic standpoint? Not, not particularly. Yeah. I mean, just, no, no different. Like, I don't know the hormonal makeup of them versus depression. Right. Well, you've or, lost the title, brain. You know, yeah, so. that's totally fine. So, what was what's interesting, and I think as a parent, and given one of our um, guests that that uh, we've interviewed, who's never had exposure to mental health and his daughter ended up, you know, with anxiety or uh, not anxiety, anorexia at 10 Mm. and uh, bipolar by 13, 14 um, and how he managed it, which I think is incredibly Mm. awesome. And we talked to him. um, He and his wife. The reason I bring that up is because like your parents were like, be more of a kid. Mm. Like, they they wanted to see you relax. What was the the and you moved around a lot as a yeah. kid. So like what was home like? Why did you move so much? How did that play a role or did it? Like what I'm just very curious because I think it's important even as parents that sometimes no matter what you do, there's nothing you can do to 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 change that other than to give it a, a safe space to be. Um, um, so I'm curious to understand how you grew up. Yeah. So should I just give you my timeline? Sure. Okay. Uh, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, and I lived there for till I was seven. And um, my family had a family business. We were doing very well. Things happened on the business side. And so uh, we ultimately lost that business. I was I was seven. I had no idea what was going on. So I, I was born into a, a fairly stable, like fairly upper middle class, I guess you could say, home in Memphis, Tennessee as an Asian American, which has its separate set of struggles, um, but mostly happy. And uh, my brother came along while I was out there, too. So he, he and I are five years apart. And um, when I was seven, our family's world flips upside down with the loss of this business. And all of a sudden, like we were struggling you know and had to find a way to make ends meet and my dad is such a go-getter in that way it just so happened that we knew people 
kind of like spread out all over the country. And so for the next 10 years, we were uh, moving wherever the jobs took us. And that led us from Tennessee to Pasadena, California. And then we went to Glendale, California. And then we moved to Fayetteville, North Carolina on a military base. And that was like right right after 9-11 happened. So there was a lot of reserve members, you know, being deployed and things. And then we moved to Dallas, Texas, where I had some family. So we stayed there for a little bit. And then we went to Louisville, Texas. And then we moved back to California, which uh, all my family's here now. So growing up, I moved every summer. So every Mm. fall I was new, new state or on a new coast. Uh, I never had like two school years back to back where I knew who my, you know, peers and teachers were. So in that sense, like I think outside looking in, people say, oh, that must have been so hard. You know, how how did you manage that? Like, how's your relationship with your parents? You know, and I I feel very fortunate that I was very close with my parents and I never once felt any sort of like resentment or any kind of like familial chaos from it. Like we were very strong as a family unit, the four of us, Um, where it did become a little bit more messy I guess in my mind is is me at school and like me in relationship to other kids my age and that's where I struggled was day one you're always trying to fit in like wherever you are so so you have like a couple hundred days to find your find your friends you know make your friends keep your friends and then lose your friends right and by like the third or fourth move I was almost expecting to move again and so when I would meet kids I would say like yeah I'm Gina I'm from you know Texas or wherever else I was from and and then almost kind of tee up that I would leave at the end of the summer do when you I'm sorry I know there's more timeline probably when you um reflect on it or journal do you think that had anything to do with the panic in high school because you said you said um that you thought it was college like Mm -hmm. causing the panic attack and and that's another move another set of friends but then college you were there for I don't know, four, four years, years mm-hmm. where you didn't move and you probably, you got to have the same set. Yeah. Do you think that that, did it, did it play in at all? So I, in, in high school, I did like an ultimatum to my parents and I said, I'm not moving freshman year. Like, I think when I was 16, I was like, I'm not moving. If, if we have to move, I will move in with my friend and I will stay. And, um, they're first gen immigrants. And so college was this big, like scary thing. I was the first person in my family to go to college in America. And so they thought like, Oh, if we move Gina during high school, she's not going to go to college. So we stayed for college. I was, I was at the same, or we stayed for high school. Oh, so all the high same, school. Yeah. same high school for four years. And, um, I think I built up all this pressure of like what high school was supposed to look like, you know, from a, social perspective but also an academic and then it was my first chance to be somewhere for more than a year so there was all this pressure to fit in to be liked to do well in school to be a good kid so like volunteer all that stuff and junior year when all your college apps are due I think it just like all came crashing down and um that's what I just think happened but you know, maybe high school Gina would have said, like, I was just stressed with class or something like that. But um, just the expectation of what I had in mind for who I was going to be in high school and post high school, because I felt like the moving was over. It's kind of like this breath, like, ah, I'm done. And and it was still hard. You know, it was still hard to be in the same school and it was still hard to to uh, have the same friends. And I thought it would be so much easier. Mm-hmm. 
He did not. Um, so do, so interesting parallel that your anxiety kicked in in high school yeah. when you were around back on the couch more korean students mm-hmm. and you know korea like a lot of east asian cultures are very high performing yes did that contribute to it like am i going to live up to this standard or i don't know if that was it as much as it was I felt like I was being blended into this blob of people that people Mm. expected me to act a certain way or study a certain way or talk a certain way or dress a certain way. And I didn't feel like I felt as a part of that. And I didn't really want to be a part of that either. So I didn't find myself assimilating to the mass of Korean students at my high school. I did hang out with them, but I was always like maybe one step removed in the way that you were always the asian student Mm -hmm. the chinese now did you get the same in-group judgment just from a different lens sure come on now in groups are the worst in groups are the hardest it is so hard yes and it was like gina's this because she's from texas or gina's whitewash she's a what yeah she's a twinkie do you know what a twinkie Uh, is yes yeah Yeah, i was i was oreo Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And I'm an Oreo. Yeah. Because <laughs> huh. I sound white. Yeah. And I was I was in cheerleading. Like I was editor of my yearbook. I was class president. And those aren't really those are very like extroverted things that typically a lot of Korean American students didn't step up to do. Like Korean American students were first chair in orchestra or Which is interesting because there's only like so many first chairs. Right. <laughs> You know what I well, mean? Well, no, no, no. But it, to the to the larger point, no group is a monolith. Mm-hmm. Like Koreans do these things, right. but Koreans do all kinds of things. Exactly. And like to bucketize you for it's weird, right? Like this is something that eternally frustrates me about my black folks. Like we're not one, and and like you'll tell me that I'm not black enough, but then you'll turn around and tell Keith, the white dude, that like all oh, black people this. And it's like, wait, what? What's happening yeah. right now? You know, it's it's such a funny thing, especially from a white, like my white lens, is that no matter what I've done, I've never not been white enough. Or like, it's not a thing. Like, oh, look at (laughs) look how white he is or she is, and it's kind of a joke because they're a bad dancer or they're something. But it's not. They're they're. It's just not a thing. Uh-huh. It's becoming a thing. Among... Weren't we talking about this earlier? It's kind of becoming we're, we're a thing. We're talking about the white racial identity that's becoming more of a thing. But if you look at it, it's not, it's a joke. It's a high class type yeah. of situation. Like it's a place that, oh, okay. Like cool. Right. Like yeah. if that's what you think I am, like, that's cool. Like I'm cool with, you know, being high class or whatever. I can't dance. It doesn't affect my day. Like, like I can't dance. Yeah, exactly. And it, it fascinates me. Like, how does that impact in both of you? Like mentally, like daily when you're around people of your own culture or people that look like you or, you know, people that look like me, like what, is there a flip flop and is it positive, negative? Like, how does that all play out? Because it's just, it's so interesting that, you can jump jump from place to place to place and be the outsider and then go to a place where you potentially could be the insider and now you're still the outsider. It is mm. confusing. Um, I think in the last few years, 
and especially going to a school like Pepperdine, which was when I went, it was um, very heavily Caucasian and probably still is. It's gotten a little bit better, I think. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then that was another flip, right? So I went from like high school where there were tons of Asians and then again back to like college where there were no Asians again. Like there were 10 of us. And in college, I just ran the other way. I was like, I am not joining Korean club. Like I'm not joining Asian Pacific Heritage Club or whatever it is. And I just like, I was like, this is it. I'm going to make, I am who I am. Like, and it's not going to be tied to a race. And I think it was almost like a, uh, an act of healing for me to separate myself from that because I was I was so inundated by it up up through high school. I was like, I yeah. just want to be me, and I just want to study and like do things I love. But you can't you can't separate yourself, right? Like people perceive you for who you are, or uh, what they perceive you to be. And so, yeah, I don't I think, think I don't think I reconciled it in college even. But you said you kind of suppressed like the panic attacks. Do you think it could have been? some emotional triggers that maybe you just suppressed in general or no no i don't know like did i suppress my feelings about my race and And just the confusion of it or like getting to be around Mm -hmm. air quote my people and Mm -hmm. not fitting in like Mm -hmm. like what am i gonna you know what's weird about that is like junior year (laughs) junior year was probably when i was so socially focused too so i was like I don't know. I don't want to say campaigning, but like my friends were pushing me to be homecoming queen and I, and I got it and I still didn't feel like I fit in, which is so insane. This right? is a eerily strange parallel. I got, there was no reason for me to be a part of the homecoming court and, and my friends pushed me to be in homecoming and yeah. I, I didn't win King, but I was like on the court. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I like on court or whatever. And like, junior year. I was like, I don't understand this. It felt even weirder. Huh. It's right. a really strange parallel. Yeah. Or, and then all the Koreans were like, oh, she's the only Korean on court backing me. And I did like, I was like, I don't even talk to a lot of you, but because you recognize my name, maybe you voted for me. I don't know. So it was like a weird thing. So from the outside in, it probably looked like I was having a fantastic year. <laughs> I was class president. I was on court. So you were, you were, you were a known quantity and you were liked to a degree that maybe you're not accepting right now. Yeah. Obviously, if you were president and also got voted under the court, like for whatever the popularity contest is right. that is high school. It was all these checks of like cheerleader, da da da, like all of these Do things. You, you, you mentioned it earlier that um, in general, um, Koreans don't look for that. Mm. So were you the Korean in your school looking for that? And like, are you downplaying it to Rodney's question <laughs> as a demographic vote? Like, I, is that, is that the way you perceive it? I think I was, if, if my classmate, if you got all my classmates and pulled them and said like, who are the top five Koreans in your class who were socially out there? It, like I would be on that. You think you'd be one? Yeah. Probably for girls. Yeah. High school politics broken down right yeah. here. Well, I, find, more in common. I find it. Yeah. I find it more fascinating that you felt this, your parents were first generation immigrants. So if anybody has a claim to Korean culture, like did your parents raise you in the culture? Like what was that like at home for you? Yeah. And 
did that cause dissonance at school based on the way other people said you should be? So I should I should note some one very important fact about my childhood was my grandma lived with us from age one to 16. So she was moving okay. with us. She spoke Korean fluently, of course. And do you? Yeah, I, I spoke Korean fluently. I still speak Korean fluently. Um, so in that way, I would say culture was definitely a part of home life because of my grandma, because she was there yeah. all the time cooking meals, you know, teaching me how to read and write Korean, speaking Korean to me, watching Korean TV, music, all that stuff. My dad, he, back in Korea, was studying English. Like, America was always his goal. Mm-hmm. So as soon as he married my mom and um, there was an opportunity to move, he moved. So, as, you know, he wanted to raise his kids as American kids. So there was this kind of, like, balance at home of my dad would try to ask me more, like, American questions. So he talked to me about the stock market or... American history um, at the dinner table. Like, those were the types of things we talked about. And then on the side, my Mm. grandma, who was caring for us while my parents worked many, many hours during the day, would instill, like, the Korean values and things like that. Um, And we also, we were a very Christian home, so we were very involved in church. And Korean churches is another subject I could spend hours on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is another group, like, entirely that's that's another example of like it's a a religion but it's also a culture Mm because when you move to a new country and you don't know anyone where do you who do you go to and every city has even memphis has a korean church right we went to like korean baptist church i live in gardena we got like 30 oh yeah it's a thing like you move you find your korean church and they'll they'll help you they'll hook it up (laughs) so we went to the largest korean church in la which is about eight thousand people i think oh yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Mega. Uh-huh. It's a mega church up like 20 miles away from Eight, here. Like how many people in a single service? I think like three. Oh, my God. Yeah. I like can't stadium. even. That's a state. Yeah. 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 And then that was another like thing I was. Well, that's a whole other cultural identity thing. Right. Like... And I was very involved in that life, too, <laughs> on top of all of the things in high school. And so. Learning. You all... said a couple of times. Um that like before when you get into something and you start realizing it's not aligning to your to core to who you are or your values and then you just said korean values and that's a whole nother thing like what are your core what is core to who you are and what are those values mm. as gina as gina okay um yeah whose house my values <laughs> um they are to to be vulnerable, to be honest with myself, and to be kind to others. And that manifests in different ways, like to the to be kind to others and vulnerable piece. Family is another huge one. Like, I grew up only knowing family um, because at the time we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have Twitter. So when, when I moved, like, I didn't take my friends with me. Like, that was it. I started over. But family, like my my brother and my mom and my dad were the ones that, and my grandma were the ones who came with me. And so that is very, very core to who I am. And, and... No, I'm just curious. That's <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, that's a good question. You said... Uh, I, don't, I don't have any grandma, I have other questions. Yeah. Grandma was watching you while your parents worked a lot of... Long the long. way you said it made me think that you felt like they worked too much. Yeah. Is that well, is that how you said it? I or feel that... it. I knew it. <laughs> 
they did work too much. Oh. Oh yeah. Um I I don't think I saw my dad very much and that's not a sad thing. I knew he was doing what he had to do. Like I was never really like resentful towards it, but he worked his butt off. Like he had, you know, three jobs at a time and I knew it. From a young age, I grew up really fast. Like I had to accept that that was our lives cuz we had to survive, you know. And my mom also worked that, that many jobs too and sometimes together sometimes they were together you know working jobs um at the same time sometimes you know one was taking a night shift someone was somewhere else like their jobs were constantly changing it was just um i couldn't keep up with what they were doing but i knew that they were both working way too much so you couldn't even name all the jobs your dad had uh no (laughs) um yeah i couldn't so all of this leads to a thought I had coming into the conversation, but now I'm even more curious about it. So you did a TEDx. Yeah. And a really uh, good TEDx. Oh, a really you. good TEDx. And it was about we'll passion. We'll to the show notes. Yeah. It was about passion. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you say in it is we have an unrealistic expectation for passion today. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And where does that, come from for you Mm. that yeah that line I meant to say that I think people society you know when you hear the word passion a lot of times that's synonymous with your career Mm -hmm. Um, you know I'm passionate about cars so I'm going to be a NASCAR driver like it's it's pushed to almost the extreme of like you have to achieve the most, you know, upper echelon of success. You love butterflies, so you should go, you should go study them forever and ever. A and, new breed of butterflies yeah. and, you know, make them the most successful That should be the what the thing you do yeah, or become. Like you should be on that geo for that, you yeah. know. Then that's your passion, Yeah, you know. Um, oh. But it's not, right? Like, you can be passionate about something and get no recognition. That doesn't va- invalidate your passion or make it any less valuable. Um. So I think a lot of times people are scared to fully commit to their passion thinking that, and I've, I'm guilty of this too. It's like, for, for me, it was photography, but like, it's not profitable or I can't make a living off of this. So I'm not going to pursue my passion or I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to cast it off to the side and focus on my career when you can do both. Um, so that's what I meant by that. How did you, did, oh, go ahead, Keith. Uh, no, you go ahead. I think you were going to ask the same question. <laughs> In a different way, so I'll let your way rule the day. <laughs> how did how did you get to that place? Like, did you you said you struggle with it, or you struggle or struggled? Still struggle. Okay. Yeah. How did I get? Um. So, I should say my passion is photography. Like one of my passions is photography, and I had that very real struggle. If am I am I going to major in this and pursue it as a career? And I didn't. And for a while, and you know, I still struggle with it now is like, I felt like I was letting go of something that was core to who I am. And it was this, oh, this like big hole in my life of like, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And that was taking up more time than me trying to work towards what my goals actually were. Like I was, I was almost like, you know, in this weird space of transition, like why am I not pursuing photography and not really doing anything else about it too. So I envision this like 
on one hand, you're squarely a millennial. Uh And on the other hand, you've got this experience with your parents being um, first generation fob fresh off the boat. Is that, is that, is that, how do you feel about that term? I don't like it. (laughs) Cause I want to say my parents are fob. I don't know. Fob. Isn't what's that? Isn't that show called that? Fresh off the boat. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very commonly used. I know it's commonly used, but I've never actually said it to anybody. So I'm wondering, like, is that? I think it's a little bit like I would never go up to someone and be like, "You're a fob." You're a fob. It's ten. It's mm. tend to right? be like in in a conversation. It's ten. It's typically derogative, isn't it? Yeah, but then it's also they people use it self deprecating in a self deprecating way. So they'll be like, "Oh, I just I'm such a fob." I'm such a yeah. Yeah. Like, if their English breaks mid-sentence, they'll be like, oh, fob moment, you know? Uh, well, mm. I, I've never like, heard that. Can but... you talk slower? I'm a fob, you know? Mm. So, I'm one, so on the other hand, so millennial on one hand, parents, first-generation parents on the other hand, yeah. that are, like, I, I have to presume a lot of that work, that drive for them is that. Like, they were, we're like, we're here, we're going to make it. Mm-hmm. You're, my, my children are going to make it. So, I see this struggle, like, millennial, passion, passion, passion. <laughs> uh, and I, like... And I don't think it's as misguided as many people think, but misguided, like passion. And then I just got to work. Yeah, like I got to do, exactly. I got to, like, is that real? Yes. Yes. That is a hundred. I'm on the chair again. <laughs> 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 um, yes. And that is exactly what I went through senior or not even through senior year, but like as soon as I realized I needed to make money, I was balancing those two and i'm I'm, you said it you said i can't i can't lose this job when you were talking about the panic attacks you said i can't lose this job i cannot lose this job i was living with my parents at the time like i could have lost the job and been okay like i could have had a house and food but survive like survival is not enough for me and so when people ask me would you ever be an entrepreneur i'm like no that is so scary because that's unstable it's scary you know and I crave stability and I am very comfortable with that. I've, I've come to accept that that is part of who I am and I'm not. Was that a difficult thing to come to? Uh, not, no, I would maybe a little bit with the creative stuff. I had to let go. It was, it was, but you could be a photographer for a big company or for, yeah, but I guess that's not your creativity necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't want to be doing like editorial I was like looking more into photojournalism and stuff oh, like gotcha. that, yeah. which is, you know, um, but definitely I have this, this drive in me to, if I'm going to work, I'm going to work and it's going to work for me and my finances. And then my, I can put my passions and hobbies on the side. I have a question yes. about passion mm-hmm. in this whole idea. Like, I love your perspective on it and one of those opportunities for me to really challenge the way I think about passion myself. Um, but how they, I have a, yeah. How do you feel about companies? IE the one that we all work for (laughs) telling, telling us we need to be passionate about what we do. Oh, Oh, hot take coming up. (laughs) (laughs) i come from a place where i believe work can be a means to an end so i think that just comes from my parents surviving and so i think like 
that to me is also in some way a passion is to make sure I am building a life for me and my future family that is able to support and provide. And so I can't really separate my personal interests, like, you know, hobbies and things from the fact that my passion is to be successful at work. And so I, when I do believe in a company like the, the one we work for, um, I don't really take it that, that badly when they say to be passionate about my work. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll find something I'm good at. I'll find something that I feel is contributing and I will do my best at it. And to me, that is what I see as career passion. That's very different from maybe what some other people might say. Keith, but. how do you take it? Well, I think where, cause I, I think that's great. I think that's a great take. And I would agree, like find a job that you can live passionately in, right. And just give it your all to, to succeed regardless of what it is, where I disconnect from the, the direction is when I'm told be passionate about a thing that we do, <laughs> right? Like, Hey, Hey, you know, we'll say it. You know, we all know we work for Microsoft. We've talked about it before. Like I can't be passionate about office <laughs> or windows <laughs> or cloud services. Like I, it's just, I get there are people that work here that do. Yeah. And I think it's amazing that they do, right? Like no, there's nothing wrong them. with being passionate. There's about it. nothing wrong with it, but it's like, why do I need to be like, to your point, Gina, like I'm passionate about doing good work. Like I am passionate about making sure that I show up my best often. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah like to your point, to like it can be a, a means to an end. Right. And that end is feeding my family and I'm yeah. passionate about them yeah. eating. <laughs> right. So therefore like, telling me, telling me you need to be passionate about cloud services. Pick, you're pick basically a metric. telling me like, I need to live and breathe this in order to be successful. I think it's the wrong word. Like, okay, this is my problem with it. I think it's the wrong word. Like you can't, well, I guess you can tell somebody to be passionate about a thing, but like, I don't think passion works like that. Mm hmm. Like you have it or you don't. Right. I don't think. Right. That's I don't, why it's personal. Right. You yeah. can't expect everyone, every. But this is, see, this just gets into like, this opens a bag of shit for me with corporate America. Like mm -hmm. uh, we tell people to be passionate or we tell people we're family. Like, no, we're not fucking family. Like, you're not my family. Like, no. Nope. A paycheck. We're not here. <laughs> yeah. Like. My, pa not, my family we're doesn't. We're not in the trenches. We're not bleeding every day. No, we're, we're not, not sweating every wise. day. Like. We're not having real talk about the things like we're just here surviving sometimes barely in order just to get a thing done and we're yeah. out like, yeah. And, and tomorrow you can tell me to go home and like never come back again. My yeah. family would never do that to me. Mm -hmm. Like, so how can I call you family when you can dispose of me like a bag of trash? Mm. Right. Yeah. I struggle with that. Oh, it bothers me. Burn that. How do you feel about it, Gina? That does. Yeah. I ah, I have this. It irks me when people overuse the word family. Mm. Like, um, uh, like McDonald's. Do they say I don't that? know. I don't, uh, I felt. It, I'm sure they say something like, "Come on in, we're family." You know, like being on sports teams in school or something. They're like, "We're family." You know, it's like, no, we're not. And I actually think sports can feel more like a family yeah. because of the shared struggle. Like it's a different level of struggle, of struggle than I, for me personally. Yeah. Than, yeah. 
work. No, I would different. agree. Like sports, sports, especially the higher levels you get, can absolutely. Yeah, I played such a high level. Yeah, my middle was so school high volleyball level. team was not a family. Uh, my middle school volleyball. Well, I didn't play volleyball, but my middle school <laughs> kickball team, we were like ride or die. You know, <laughs> but it's shared blood in, blood out. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we like, man, remember that time? Shared struggle, corporate America. Yeah, no. things get weird when it's tied to money. Money does weird things, right? Uh, so, what do you mean by that? Because yeah. yeah. get into that. Get. Yeah, like you, we are all paid to be at work, right? And right. so when you tie things like passion and family and love and things that are core to being human and like personal to you, that can be messy because you're you're there to receive a paycheck unless i don't know you founded the company and that is your true passion in life and that's what you're doing and you you employ all these people and you consider them to be your family but most of the time in corporate america you apply for a job you interview and you get it and then they call you family i think that's just very confusing especially when there's money involved i wonder if it's meant to conflate some of those things so that it's like yeah i'll say i love it because i love this paycheck like i do i do genuinely love this paycheck so you know what i I do love that thing that we do. That widget number number seven is great, even though it's dog shit. But it's great. No, I mean we talk about the the golden the golden prison, not the golden handcuffs. Oh, right? yeah, we've, we've changed it a, from golden handcuffs to golden prison. I, I think I think that's a part of it, right? Uh, it's I want to like if I they want us to love them, so we give them our all, even though tomorrow they can get rid of us. So right? let's take they, Google. Let's take Google because. Let's not talk about where we work. Yeah. Right, where we yeah. work's perfect. <laughs> Let's talk about Google. So, like, I went, I had lunch or breakfast there, I don't know, 12 months ago uh, with a friend. And their breakfast cafe, like, you get to order an omelet and, like, whatever you want. And they also have a buffet. That next to the water, they have fish oil and vitamin D and vitamin C and, like, multivitamins and collagen and protein powder and spirulina. Anything that you could want for your, that's there. And like, so it's like the trappings. It's like all the things mm. that you would want that you now don't how long I have to pay. So it's money saved. Um, now, now also you never really need to leave campus. Yeah. And so if, if an opportunity comes up, I mean, not, I mean, on top of that, you get stock options, you get a great paycheck, you get health, you get, they have a uh, personal trainers and a gym. They have a uh, multiple espresso guys, like, baristas there on campus like what do you want I, you want the regular because you're my guy mm-hmm. um all of these things and and i think we changed it to golden prison because like we're having this this dialogue this conversation about like not only do we have this passion but we see a road where we can make this our livelihood mm-hmm. and even thinking about putting a foot on that road and I'm re- I'm pretty risk averse. Keith is a well as well a well what what as well. Yeah, um, serve water. <laughs> wells do serve water, and even putting a foot on that road is uh, is terrifying because it's like oh wait, I'm in this wonderful cell that has all I need. Yeah. Why leave it? Mm-hmm. Why would I leave? Like that looks pretty good over there, and and we're pretty intelligent people. It's easy to see or know that the grass is often not greener, right? Like, so it's just, it just feels like a, is it a jilted, jilted cage or? No, but I think it also ties back to Gina's point of the over-indexing on passion. Yeah. 
right it's 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 an interesting thing but at the same time like then it's a matter of and it is who you are if you can make if you can do it do it right but don't feel obligated to do it right mm. well and also not necessarily if i don't feel obligated to do it i would like to do it what i see as a thing to overcome is like well do I want to turn the key and open the cell? Like, is that something that yeah. I really, really want to explore? Kind of like to key. your point. Oh, do I even, I don't even know if I have the key. Yeah. That's, that's a, a, that's a that's great a question. Deep question. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. We're looking well, for and it's it. Like, yeah. And it's like, because if I open it, all those things that are really important, like the means to the end, the feeding of the family, the, Having a paycheck, yeah. having a health insurance, all that stuff is there. So do I, if I had the key, maybe I have it and I hit it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I, wait, yes, I have the key. I hit it for myself. Ooh. Mm. It's good. So Gina. Yeah. Like what we're gonna we're gonna cut that. Holy conversation. Like, it's such what? a good conversation. So, so I just looked as, at that and it was like ten thirty five or ten thirty nine. I will say so, real quick, my dad and my, my parents would say that this is like Harvard. Like I've made it, you know? Oh and if I ever left, I think my dad would be devastated. I talk yeah. about this with a lot of my friends I went to school with that one of my buddies is at Facebook now, he was at Apple. His parent, like when he left, he left Motorola. Motorola. They're not even around anymore. But he left there, and they're like, "What is wrong with you?" Yeah. They're first generation from India, and then like he left Apple. He left Apple. Right. And they're like, and didn't have a job, and they're like, <gasps> "What the f is wrong with you?" And he's like, I just, I... <laughs> "Gina just had a band. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Why would you do that? Like, Microsoft? Yeah. Like for them, the, yeah. To your Harvard, it's the bit. It's the major league. It's, yeah. It's NFL. It's, it's like. My the dad, Olympics. Right. My dad, it's like giving up your gold medal to go take bronze from. Not even bronze. It's like to go sweep up a. Yeah. They're like, I've been there. Why would you go do. Why would you go to the D League? I think I think it ultimately comes down to. <laughs> How would you go to the D League? How would you go to the D League on purpose? If you try to make money on your passion, you'll you'll water down your passion. But yeah. if you make money on your passion, then good for you. Right. Yeah. Like, like awesome. We will worship you. Yeah. For figuring that out. And I think people do. Yeah. And they do. And I think we will. I just, you know, we're in this space right now where we're, it goes back to what Phil said about investing in your pursuit based on the, you know, there's so much goodness gracious. We could go on for days. So we're running out of time. I've got to get running. And we always have to ask, leave, leave our audience with one thing you would like to leave our audience with. I'm surprised you didn't have this prepared. I do. It's just in four pages. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would like to leave with everyone has their story and their path. And we are forgetful people. We are forgetful beings. So record it, you know, write it, photograph it, share it because that's how you grow and that's how you develop and that's how you share with others. And if you're not recording your thoughts and like what you're 
going through and your intentions, it's so easy to get whiplashed by life mm-hmm. and then change what you think you are and then pause and look back and go, oh, that's that's not who I am. That's not what I wanted to be doing. But I somehow got on this path 